been exploring this simile of the cloth sutta that gives one possibility for the arc of practice, the arc of the path, and one thing that comes forth from this image of the cloth that is stained and doesn't take the dye evenly at first is this idea of purification, cleansing of the cloth. Not our favorite word here in the West, um, but also I think sometimes misunderstood. And so I'll talk just a little bit about, um, a little bit more about this idea of purification. It's important to distinguish purification from purity. Uh, may help to know that the Buddha didn't really speak in favor of aiming for purity as a goal of practice. But purification he did talk about. So this is helpful to, to distinguish. One part of purification is to alter the content of the mind stream. So that means noticing the unskillful qualities like those 16 imperfections that we talked about and somehow replacing them with something more skillful. And this I think we can understand because <clears throat> you know when we start practice we first become mindful of our mind we're aware that there's a lot in there that we didn't really first of all we didn't really want to see sometimes but that is really not serving us in the moment. And so there is a certain amount of stopping of these harmful things before we can really embark on a spiritual path. So there is that aspect. Um, but another part of purification is to alter the relationship that we have to our mental habits and patterns to the content of our mind. So changing the content itself and changing the relationship both have a big impact on our experience, on the flow of how all of that unfolds. So they're both, they're both important, but sometimes we emphasize one or the other and we may not realize that it's really the relationship. Eventually it's the relationship where the freedom is, the relationship of ease or non-clinging or peace with whatever is happening in the mind. But they're still connected. Uh, so let's look a little bit more at this idea of mental patterns or mental habits. We see them in our mind. Um, as we start looking, when mindfulness gets a little more continuous and we're not just seeing isolated here and there bits of our mind, we realize that there are repetitions of things. Has anybody noticed this over time? And, you know, it's, it's even repetitions in kind of our thought patterns, but also in our life patterns. You get older and at some point you realize, my gosh, I've had the same relationship four times in a row, or I keep getting the same job. Why does this keep happening? And so, you know, it's um, this is actually something we're supposed to notice <laughs> as practice goes on. Um, 
So that's fine. That's just how it is, um, the flow of the body and the mind. It's not even very personal. But we, um, we can think about the relationship that we have to what we're seeing in our, in our experience. And so this sutta talks about the possibility of having an inferior relationship don't worry about the judgment there, but we do have some, we do have to have some sense of what's better and what's not so good for our health. And so the inferiors is, in this context of habits and patterns, is that we're just letting them run. You know, we have a, the unwholesome ones, we're just letting the unwholesome ones run. We have a habitual tendency to be irritated and uh, we just let that happen and we snap at people and and so forth, or we have a habit of judgment, and we judge ourselves, and we judge others, and we just let that run. And we, you know, we can even justify, sometimes people even justify their habits. I shouldn't even just say sometimes. It's very common that we say, well, this is just how I am, and or or it, it deserves that, you know, this is something that needs to be um, angry. I need to be angry about this because of how it is. And so um, we have this sense that we're, we're not really conscious of our patterns. And essentially, in that case, we're letting them drive us. You know, they're in the driver's seat. And I think you remember that list of 16 well enough to know that those are not things you want in the driver's seat, really. Um, so there is a need to realize, okay, these are not so helpful. If my aim is really spiritual aims of peace and care and certainly you know, ethics in the world, we wouldn't want these things. They're not part of that. Um, we wouldn't want them running the show, at least. So then we start to get the sense that there is an alternative to have a, a different relationship to these things. And so the sutta offers the idea of a superior relationship, quote-unquote. And that has to do with um, with purifying, purification practices. So the, this is referring to the fourth noble truth, the truth of the path. So there's, we might think that there's a thing called a path of purification. And guess what? That's a book in the Theravada tradition. It's not one of the original books of the Pali Canon, but one of the commentaries is called Path of Purification, the Vasudhimagga. And it's all about practice. Actually, it's a big, vast practice manual. So it's about the path. So there's a way that um, it's been understood for a long time that the mind is not that easy to work with. We can't get very far if our aim is, okay, I'm going to change all the content to be the right thing. I'm only going to think peaceful, loving thoughts. Only thing that's going to rise in my mind is compassion and ethics. That's a good wish but it's not so practical. Um, so instead, we adopt this um, superior relationship to experience, and then we start, that allows us actually to see more and more about, about how the content can be different. So sometimes um, we can release habits directly, like um, metta as a counteraction to will, ill will, Sometimes when ill will comes, we don't have to just accept it. We can change it into something uh, more positive in that moment. But it's also true that there are certain patterns that are really well entrenched, and they're also really smart and clever. 
And when we try to let go of them directly, we trigger some kind of a survival mechanism that seems to be built into the pattern. And um, we can't, we find that we can't really let it go so direct, directly. So we need some other options besides our own effort to purify our minds and you know some kind of a direct engagement with things. I think we've all seen that too. Anybody who's practiced for a fair amount of time uh, understands that this is a little bit tricky business with these patterns of the mind. Um, so purification in the spiritual sense is often about creating the conditions for our difficult mental habits to release themselves. So there's an intriguing idea. Generally, purification practices work in that way. Um, so we have, I'll, to be more specific, I'll just name some that we have in our tradition. Uh, there's many, many in the, in the whole universe. But our tradition tends to emphasize um, certain body practices. There are ways that we can release things through the body. It's one of the emphasis in my teaching, at least, is to come into the direct experience of our body, of our breath, and if things come up, difficult emotions will tend to come up as we're practicing, and somehow those we process those through the body by feeling them, feeling that there's a tension in the chest or the throat or the belly is fluttering or something. Those are all ways that we're um, engaging with these um, mental habits and patterns that's in between denying them or suppressing them, you know, not feeling them, saying, oh, I'm not going to have that, is that actually they'll just come back. But we also don't need to express them and, you know, put them out, put that uh, energy of those 16 imperfections out into the world, because that just makes somebody else have to deal with them also. So there are ways that we can process them in the body. And um, that's a purification practice, actually if you want to think of it that way. So somatic release of various things that are coming up. Um, that's not the only option, of course. Um, there are also uh, the generation of these positive emotions, not necessarily as counteractions, not like, oh, there's ill will and now I need to apply metta. Um, instead, we can take times when we're just sitting in meditation anyway, like we did on the evenings and the mornings this week, is that we just generate um, the Brahmavikaras, for example, the loving-kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity on their own. And when the mind is absorbed and occupied with these um, higher level, if you will, kind of higher level emotions, there isn't room. The, the, the more unskillful emotions get starved out of the mind when it's in that state, and so it's naturally purifying. It's also a really nice way to do it because they're pleasant in and of themselves, these qualities. And so it's many spiritual traditions recognize that the generation of positive mind states has this benefit in the moment, but also a longer-term benefit of um, helping to reduce the intensity, let's say, of some of those unskillful ones. Uh, this can also be done through strong faith, faith practices, which we don't emphasize as much, but um, resting in a sense of faith can also have this purifying effect. I'll say a little bit farther on that um, it's not quite enough to completely eradicate 
um, these habits, just so we know, but it's um, pretty good. <laughs> so, and then um, maybe one, one other form of purification practice I'll mention now that we don't um, emphasize maybe in our lay practice so much, but it is among the monastics, um, is a ritual practice is also um, helpful. Ritual creates a sacred space in which we can experience um, these mental, material, mental habits and patterns without acting on it or reliving it. It's a, it's a special creation of a different kind of space, you know, similar to what we do in meditation where we have a formal space, but ritual is an external enactment of that. And of course, it, it does many things. I'm not saying it only does this, but one thing it does is it helps us um, work with these patterns in our mind. Anyone who's done ritual practice knows that it's um, it can be challenging. It's just as challenging to do a ritual, um, to repeat the same thing again and again. Always have to light the candle in the same way, and then sit down, and then bow, and then light the incense, and then chant. You know, there's a set pattern of how you have to do a ritual. And it's just as hard to do that as it is to sit and pay attention to the breath. You know, the breath just comes and comes and comes, and you have to keep paying attention to it, and then all your material starts coming up. The same thing will happen in a ritual, where you're doing the same thing. And the challenge in that practice is to keep doing the ritual, keep going through it, even though things come up. And then we can purify them in that way. They're met with a, a, a meditative mind, a spiritual mind, in some sense. So through these practices, we experience what we couldn't or wouldn't before. And our relationship with those reactive emotions and energies changes. They actually become simply experiences. Like in our last meditation, it's just experience. It's just something coming. And then it's going. And that shift changes everything. Changes everything about how... um, how that pattern relates to our life. It's no longer running, it can't be in control anymore. So it's not that we're moving toward a um, state of total purity. I said that before, but I need to to say it again because many of us are idealistic and uh, have that in mind, and we don't want to be aiming for that necessarily. Really the point of purification is to get the mind into a state where the conditions are right for it to let go. That's the point of purification. We have to escape from all of our concepts. Uh, now returning to the sutta, right? The, there's an escape from this field of perception. So we're escaping from our concepts, even the concept of purity, actually. So there's um, from the, this is from one of the Buddha's teachings, one of the fairly early ones he gave. It starts with the word they, which is referring to um, people who are awake. So it says, they don't categorize, honor, or claim anything to be absolute purity. Having abandoned greed, the knot of attachment, they do not form any wish for anything in the world. So they don't categorize or claim anything to be absolute purity. So somehow freedom includes freedom from purity, but the way that we get there is through purification practices. So if you ever thought Buddhism was confusing, this might be why, um, but it's also why we don't really get it with our rational mind. We're just doing these things. And this is um, 
how the path unfolds. So, uh, as it says in the simile of the Cloth Sutta, in the end we understand that beyond there is an escape from this whole field of perception. So what perceptions? I've already mentioned the perception of purity, but all this talk about um, patterns and releasing them through this process of purification that has a start, a beginning, middle, and end, all of that is actually a particular conception of the path also. It's a particular conception. And so I want to say very clearly that freedom does not entail purifying all of our past karma. Why is that? Because there isn't a beginning. In in our tradition, there's no defined beginning of karma. So there's a lot there. (laughs) So we don't, um, it's not that we get to the perfectly clean white cloth and we get to keep it as the prize. Here it is, I got it. It's pretty white, it's pretty clean. Now I've got it. <laughs> that's, um, <clears throat> we may have that idea in our mind, but that's not quite what's um, being pointed to. Um, so we might say then that these um, 16 imperfections of the mind are somewhat uh, structural. They have a structural dimension to them. So, you know, we're now getting into a deeper understanding of what is this simile of the cloth. So it starts out with this idea that there, um, uh, you know, there's spots on our cloth. And so then we might, our our mind projects, okay, we're going to get rid of all the spots and then that's it. But there's a sutta, there's a different sutta, where a monk says to the Buddha, he claims that the fetters in the mind, fetter isn't a common word, it just means the restrictions in the mind, the binds, the bindings that tie up our mind. I think we can feel intuitively what those are. So he claims to the Buddha, oh, these fetters um, only do their fettering at the time when a person is assailed by that problem. Um, And you might think that's reasonable. I mean, isn't it about the present moment? If something's not up, it's not fettering us. And so he makes that as a categorical statement, is that if, you know, um, if we're not being assailed by ill will, it's not a fetter for us. And the Buddha doesn't let him get away with that, actually. He says, no, actually, um, the fetters fetter all the time, um, but they're active or not. And this is a little bit of a subtle point, but this was a monk, and so he was being clear with him. And the, the example the Buddha gives in that sutta is he says, well, then a baby is awakened because you know, they don't have a sense of self, they're not caught in ill will some of the time, but you know we're not looking for the awakening of a, a mind that's just not very aware of all these things. It's a different thing. And so he says actually that the fetters fetter all the time, which is an interesting idea, you know, and, and we may have touched into that a bit. There are things called underlying tendencies in the mind that are kind of there anyway. So I'm, what I'm getting to is an image that I hope you can see. So imagine that we have our, our medium, our cloth, okay, and it's got kind of some um, folds and, and wrinkles in it. This is a little too neat looking, so you know, I'll like fold it up a little bit. And it's sort of bound a little bit by internal forces. And this one's relatively clean, but imagine that it weren't and it had a bunch of spots on it also. So there's two different things going on there. There's the, there's the 
fact that the cloth might be dirty, it might have spots on it, and there's the fact that it's kind of rumpled up. So the purification practices clean the cloth and they make it white, um, but it might still have these forces binding it up. So there's still something else going on. Now it happens that um, when it gets cleaner it does naturally unfold a little bit um, because um, part of the issue with the dirt is that the dirt has some fetters that go with it. So when you get the dirt out it, it's you know a little bit flatter, a little bit nicer looking, but it's still got a few rumples in it. And so what practice does, what we need to flatten this cloth out is insight. And so we do our purification practices to clean the cloth, but only insight can dissolve the internal forces and straighten the cloth out into something flat. And eventually we find you know, that this is the part of the path. We end up with, you know, a fairly clean white cloth. Maybe it's even got a Dharma wheel on it. And maybe at that point it kind of disappears and actually the medium becomes transparent. But we could say that the, um, you know, the mind is fettered in two ways. It has these uh, spots on it and then it also has these rumples. And so this, um, the mind springs open through the practices that we do and through insights. You may have had the experience of having some kind of an insight even a relatively simple one about a psychological block that you've had for a while, something from your childhood or something, and there's a feeling of opening or like breaking loose. Um, sometimes awakening is called unbinding. It's actually pretty close to what the word means in Pali, unbinding. So we have something that's bound up and it springs open. It helps to clean it, but then we really need insight. Only insight can spring it open. That's why we have to go beyond only the purification of the Brahma-viharas into understanding the Four Noble Truths. The Buddha was pointing us toward wisdom, toward insight, as the final release of the mind. So it's good to purify. It does help to clean the mind. Um, and that, of course, makes it much more comfortable for us day to day, and it helps in our relations with others. Um, and it does facilitate the springing open, but in the end, uh, it's wisdom and insight that do the job finally. So one way that we can, um, there's another sutta that points toward this same thing that's pointed toward in the simile of the cloth, of you know the Brahma-viharas being a means, but insight being the end. And that's um, in a different sutta in the Majjhima, I mean, 52, it says here, it refers to a practitioner, and it gives the same phrase. Those of you who were in the <clears throat> first evening, I read this phrase um, again then. It says, a practitioner abides, pervading one quarter with a mind imbued with loving kindness, likewise the second, likewise the third, likewise the fourth, so above, below, around, and everywhere and to all as to herself. She abides pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with loving-kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, 
without hostility and without ill will. So that's the radiation practice of metta that we did, and we did it with the other Brahmaviharas too. But then this sutta goes on and it says, she considers this and understands it thus. This deliverance of mind through loving kindness is conditioned and volitionally produced. But whatever is conditioned and volitionally produced is impermanent, subject to cessation. If she is steady in that, she attains the destruction of the taints. This is one thing proclaimed by the Blessed One, where, if one abides diligent, ardent, and resolute, attains the supreme security from bondage that had not been attained before. So it's very interesting. This is the one of the few places, I almost said the only, but I'm not quite sure, but there's only a few places in the suttas where the Brahmaviharas are themselves the subject of insight practice. And they're seen to be conditioned. <laughs> they're the conditions that we create. They're the very, very excellent conditions. The Brahmaviharas are probably one of the highest, most beautiful, most pure states of mind that a human can experience. And they're accessible, they're portable through daily life, as well as incredibly powerful on the cushion. So I totally recommend um, their cultivation frequently. And um, in the end, we can use them as insight to see that they too, even that, even something so beautiful and white and pristine and clear is conditioned and volitionally produced and hence can't be maintained quite forever. And that can provide that last step of releasing the perception that we created through that, releasing the concept into what is awakening. So, Joseph Goldstein says, it does not matter to what you do not cling. I love that phrase. It does not matter to what you do not cling. So we don't cling to anger, we don't cling to shame, we don't cling to our body, we don't cling to our thoughts and views, we don't cling to the jhanas, we don't cling to the brahmaviharas. It doesn't matter to what you do not cling. It's the non-clinging. It's non-clinging that's freedom that uh, smooth passage through life. And, you know, non-clinging is facilitated by wholesomeness, by purity, by goodness. It's much easier then. So that's what we do. That's the part we can do. That's the path. And then this non-clinging can come to the mind. So it takes us all the way back to the very first stanzas of the Dhammapada. You've probably heard them early in your practice. They're very simple. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a corrupted mind, and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, <coughs> led by mind, <coughs> made by mind. Speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. So we land back into 
simple ethical conduct is what leads the mind, it's what makes the mind, <laughs> and it's what frees the mind. So we let go of our unreliable refuges of the 16 imperfections, which are mostly about ourself, our small little self, and we let go into the reliable refuges well with yourself as an island, yourself as a refuge, with the Dhamma as an island, with the Dhamma as a refuge. Are these contradictory? No, the self becomes the Dharma. You can walk this path, and in doing so you will merge with the Dharma, you will attune completely to it, you will become it. It's said that the practitioner who touches something of awakening becomes the Eightfold Path. It just becomes who you are to have wise view. It becomes who you are to have wise intentions, to speak well, to act well, to live well, and to practice well. So this is liberation not as a Big Bang moment, but as a pervading of daily life with non-clinging. Daily life is not always pleasant, but we see a bad mood as just a bad mood. We see our personality quirks. Anybody have any personality quirks? We see the suffering of human life, but that's just part of it. But we're not perturbed because the mind is not adding these unhelpful perceptions. So there is this. This is it, the body, the mind, and there's the possibility of getting caught in patterns around that, or there's the possibility of relating to it skillfully by walking the path. That's, that's our job. And then at some point, there's also the escape, the sense of freedom, the knowing that completely pervading this is something that is not attached, something that is a very meaningful absence of attachment, absence of suffering. So may your path come to be the same as the Dhamma, so that we become the Dhamma. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.